As We Like It, your favorite Shakespeare movie interpretation podcast. <laughs> I'm John. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. If you remember the last episode, which was our first, we watched and discussed Julie Taymor's production of The Tempest. This week, we're making it a bit more contemporary in its interpretation, and we watched and are about to discuss one of my favorite movies of all time, the 1999 classic teen comedy, Ten Things I Hate About You. But first, we should do some follow-up from last episode, because although there has only been one episode, we already have follow-up. So, John, there was something you mentioned to me that you'd forgotten to talk about last time that you thought you should have mentioned. I totally forgot this, but I happened to see a Cirque du Soleil version of The Tempest called Amaluna. Really? And I don't remember much about how the project was supposed to be a version of The Tempest, (laughs) other than that one of the characters was named Ferdinand and that his love got taken away from him. But the idea, it was directed by Diane Paulus, Mm -hmm. and it it was almost an entirely female production, uh, including like having female, the, the like the the entire band was all uh, female, right. and the MC was in this case also a version of a Prospera. Ah, mm. so basically you've only seen uh, adaptations with a female <laughs> lead, <laughs> or I mean, yes, I guess uh, at least in terms of the more uh, not straight productions. Yeah. So was this intended specifically as an adaptation of? that film adaptation or or is it just sort of you know standalone standalone loosely going in in similar directions in some ways it was more of the latter just kind of loosely inspired by the idea i think of a magical island okay right and you know i don't really remember specifically but at the same time like i don't feel that cirque de soleil's primary intention is to tell a story but rather to present incredible feats of circus artistry yeah and more about mood and setting than it is Mm -hmm. about narrative yeah. Yes, exactly. But still, that's interesting. Mostly because The Tempest isn't um, one of the ones that's more often... Like, what we're going to be talking about today is a, a play that has been many times adapted, not just put on, but adapted into new versions. Mm. But I don't think of The Tempest usually as being one where that happens. That it's when it's presented, it's more often presented quite straight. Yeah, and I, know, I don't think it's even uh, as often... Performed, period. Um, performed yeah. as, as many of the other plays. Yeah, so it's interesting that you've seen uh, one where they really have taken it in a different direction. So what the Wikipedia entry for Amaluna says is that it was loosely inspired by The Tempest. The story takes place on an island governed by goddesses. During a storm, a group of men are washed up on shore. The queen's daughter falls for one of the young men, and the trials of their love are the basis for the show's main narrative through line. Ah, okay. Hmm. So as I do recall now, most of the men who were shipwrecked on this island were evil and were trying to corrupt the female presence on the oh, island. Okay. But then Ferdinand himself was not. Right. Right. Well, and when you present Prospera, that's an easy narrative to fit into it because they are intrusions of, you know, all those various uh, characters are sort of drunkard and power hungry and you know all the various different vices of yeah, civilization yeah. are presented in the cor- in, in the course of the mm-hmm. and treachery and backstabbing almost literally right. and then you've got uh, Miranda as this unspoiled child of nature right and now i feel like we're actually just talking about wonder woman <laughs> <laughs> well the narrative of unspoiled females on island uh corrupted by a, a 
arriving men is not exactly highly original. There's a certain amount of that <laughs> in, in literature in general. So yeah, that makes sense. Yes. Um, also on The Tempest, I just wanted to br- read this brief quote. My friend posted it on Tumblr today, and it's a Tom Stoppard quote. There's not a publication mm-hmm. for it. It just says Tom Stoppard at the University of Pennsylvania in 1996. Mm-hmm. But it says, years and years ago, there was a production of The Tempest out of doors at an Oxford college on a lawn, which was the stage. And the lawn went back towards the lake and the grounds of the college, and the play began in natural light. But as it developed and as it became time for Ariel to say his farewell to the world of the Tempest, the evening had started to close in and there was some artificial lighting coming on. Mm. And as Ariel uttered his last speech, he turned and he ran across the grass and he got to the edge of the lake and he just kept running across the top of the water. The producer having thoughtfully provided a kind of walkway an inch beneath the water. And you could see and you could hear the plish plish as he ran away from you across the top of the lake until the gloom enveloped him and he disappeared from your view. And as he did so, from the further shore, a firework rocket was ignited and it went whoosh into the air and high up there it burst into lots of sparks and all the sparks went out and he had gone. When you look up the stage directions, it says exit aerial. (laughs) So I like that imagery, but I also feel like that kind of underpins the um, intense variety that you get with Shakespearean interpretation. Yeah, the range of what you do with and what Stoppard's point there to some extent is with what is can be very plain on the page mm-hmm. it just says exit exactly. aerial, but what you do with that and what he would himself have done with it i mean that's that's not wrong to say just as it says exit aerial doesn't mean when shakespeare put it on it was like and then he walked off the stage <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think so much is implicit in the dialogue and there's almost no stage direction that and the characterization yeah. that what you do uh really depends on how you interpret the text itself the, all the, and dialogue. the dialogue and the character and 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 so that plays so strongly into what uh you know what you decide it's going to you know look like mm-hmm. and uh the feel movement like and it. feel like um so much of that is dependent on interpretation how you read it how you read it as a as a text itself yeah what you think it what you think it's about, what you think it means, what you think the relationships are like, who the people are. And that's where you take the stage directions from. Thank you for listening to As We Like It. We hope you're enjoying, and I'd like to take a moment to tell you about another podcast that I'm on, Talking Tolkien, in which me and two friends read through the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, beginning with The Silmarillion, then The Hobbit, and we're currently in Lord of the Rings. If you're interested, you can find out more at TalkingTolkien.com, and we are Talking Tolkien on iTunes and Stitcher as well. Thanks! All right, and now on to 10 Things I Hate About You. Uh, kind of a brief intro to the film. It is from 1999. It was directed by Gil Junger, who doesn't really have anything else of note um, to his name. He directed a couple of like made-for-TV movies, but other than that, not, not much anybody would recognize. Uh, it was written by Karen McCullough and Kristen Smith, uh, but where its real strength is is in... It's cast, everybody being, not everybody, but a lot of the people in the cast are now rather famous names, starting with Heath Ledger, we have Julia Stiles, there's Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who is especially popular in the past few years. We have Larissa Olenek, who I grew up with as Alex Mack on Nickelodeon in 1996. Okay. But her, her most recent credit that's probably notable is she played Ken Cosgrove's wife on Mad Men. Allison Janney is in it as well. As well as the band Letters to Cleo, which later becomes a, a an inside joke in 
Parks and Recreation. So some connections in this movie. So obviously this is one of my favorite movies. I've said that many times. I'm eager to hear what you guys thought of it. I, you know, I, I hadn't even really um, known about this um this film before but i've got to say uh, you know thank you for, for <laughs> suggesting <Yeah. laughs> this because i thought it was fantastic yeah we really enjoyed it we really enjoyed it like sitting there giggling totally had a good time enjoyed it i thought it was really good too <laughs> it's one of those teen comedies that works effectively when it's not just a teen comedy yeah oh yeah no it was a completely heart i mean heartfelt movie that you know, it touched me and made me feel all gooey inside, like teen comedies or teen movies are supposed to make you feel. And I, but I laughed a lot and I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> so well done. <laughs> Some fun facts about the movie, which takes place in the greater uh, Seattle area. They, that high school that they went to is an actual high school. It looks like a chateau. It used to be a very fancy hotel that there was a fire that gutted the inside. So rather than restore it, they just turned it into a high school. Really? Huh. But the stadium that you see in the movie is also at the high school itself. And the high school was named after the stadium. So it's called Stadium High, which is maybe the most blase name you could give a high school. <laughs> but a beaut- I mean, it was an amazing set for the, for the adaptation, obviously, mm-hmm. because then when they, what they call it Padua? Yes, they called it Padua yeah. High School. Yeah, and but it was so perfect because it was all castle-like. Though... It part of me just had the response I often have to American teen movies, which is, holy crap, your high schools are bizarrely huge. I mean, I realize that was an <laughs> exceptional building, an unusual one, but still, I just, it is mind blowing to mm. me that people in the States, and I know not all of them, but still, that people go to high schools with what, I don't know, 17,000 people in it? I guess not, but it looked like that. Like, it's huge. You can see why they My couldn't resist school. doing that final shot. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, oh, with the so band gorgeous. playing on the roof, and because you've got that, you've got that uh, amazing you know, location. view, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So that for people who have not seen the movie, the last shot of the movie is literally just the band that provides most of the soundtrack is on top of the tallest mm-hmm. part of the school, and there's a helicopter just circling around. Yeah, them. and it's sort of a combination of just over the top, literally wackiness, but also, I mean sort of feels like the Beatles rooftop concert and I don't know it just it's all uh, yeah it was great <laughs> yeah what was was your high school any obviously not like that but was it that was it one of these big my high school was about 2100 people okay. that's still bigger than ours ours was at the time I think it's bigger now I think they, mm. they have more but it can't be that much bigger because the building's not bigger it was about 1100 I'd say mm-hmm. 1200 I think maybe at most our high school now it was not the biggest high school in the city by any means there no. were definitely bigger high schools but I'd say like under 2000 is kind normal. of a fancy old building though ours so, was yes yeah. ours was in a, in a heritage building in Ottawa downtown Ottawa so ours well half of it was then there was an addition built across the mm-hmm. street that was just the most boring 70s building in the world but ours was a kind of castle too actually yeah. <laughs> it's on the Rideau, Rideau Canal and built an old stone uh in the 1800s and yeah it's pretty fancy in outside inside it had been renovated to be disgusting but you know that's normal (laughs) yes and i mean with regards to the whole tribalization of Mm -hmm. high school as it's presented in this movie that's i think everybody can clearly agree that that's mostly just a a A contrivance yeah yeah well and it seemed to me that it was it was kind of done 
tongue in cheek, mm-hmm. like it, it the way that um, you know they go around and, and sort of introduce the cliques, mm-hmm. right? In in, yes. in such over the top cliche terms mm-hmm. um, that I think you know there is a bit of a nod and a wink to that. Yeah, and to the fact that it. If, if the idea is that Padua is like, you know, it's called Padua, that it's a city, that what you're being introduced to is sort of the whole city. in so it's, I mean, it's a high school as a microcosm of the city. And in a city, there are really distinct groups and that it's over the top, just the same way the whole building was over the top. And the whole experience of high school was, I mean, every character, they, they weren't caricatures, that's not the right word, but every teacher we'll get to them in a moment i'm sure but every teacher or authority figure is obviously an exaggeration of the sort of stereotype of that figure yes and first off i want to say i think you're the first person mark i've met who also says clique (laughs) (laughs) oh instead of click oh instead of click yes right and that makes me very happy because I cannot tell you how much flack I got for that in, in eighth grade. C'est une clique. <laughs> I mean, except that I, I, they may say click in French too, actually. C'est une clique. Hmm. Now I don't know. No. Uh, je parle français comme une vache espagnole. <laughs> Nous parlons français assez bien, mais uh, pas pour cette, uh, cet environ. <laughs> French was the first foreign language I studied, and that was over 10 years ago now, which is a horrifying thought. <laughs> And I retained very little of it. Anyway. Well, we grew up. Actually, this is a great segue point because French class takes a lot. Oh, yes. It takes a prominent role, of course. The French tutor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Because the the way that they use Taming of the Shrew Mm -hmm. is that there are these two sisters. One, the older sister is the shrew. She's kind of aggressive. Mm -hmm. And the younger one is very attractive. And so. Pause. Pause for the first moment here. The older one, also very attractive. Her character is not attractive. Okay, yes. yes. (laughs) The younger one is biddable and wants everyone to love her and also very pretty. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And so multiple characters then want to date Bianca, Mm -hmm. but they cannot date Bianca because their father originally has the rule no dating at all. Mm -hmm. But then the father is kind of fed up with listening to Bianca whine about it. So he changes in what is a very clearly a moment of bad parenting. <laughs> he changes the rule to say that Bianca can only date if Kat is dating. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you'll you'll notice is, you know, Bianca and Kat are drawn straight mm-hmm. from the, the, from the play. The play. The uh, well, Katarina. But yes, um, Cameron, who is our, kind of our, our main character, mm-hmm. is, he, he invents french tutoring as a way to get to know bianca mm-hmm. because she's allowed to have male friend contact with a tutor but not with any other boys yes the fact that he doesn't actually speak french notwithstanding and i mean that's that is a, pretty much exactly the same contrivance as in the the play um mm-hmm. that you know he he does disguise himself as a tutor to gain entrance to the to the house but it translates so well to the uh, high school high environment school, yeah. and in the play he is newly arrived in town so no one knows him and he can pretend to be he's the wrong rank to be a tutor but he can pretend to be the tutor but and this cameron is newly arrived at the high school so nobody knows him and nobody knows for instance he doesn't speak french mm-hmm. so yeah it no it was very nice all the way through the ad the the adaptation of the original text i think was beautifully done yes and they do a lot of winking mm-hmm. at the 
the source material, you know, Padua High, Cat, and Bianca. Their last name is given as Stratford, which if anybody knows anything <laughs> about Shakespeare, that yeah. should ring a bell. And then Petruchio becomes Patrick. And the whole subplot, of course, of the girl who's in love with Shakespeare. <laughs> so, <It's laughs> I, what did you guys think of that? Oh, I thought it was lovely. I thought it was sweet, <laughs> personally. <laughs> it's a little maybe caricatured but there are definitely people like that in high school who are just obsessed with certain Uh, i won't i won't go into details but let me just say that somebody who may or may not be in the room with me right now was a little bit involved with the character of hamlet in high school and after ham high school and may or may not have (laughs) modeled himself in certain ways on hamlet in terms of clothing choices and brooding (laughs) and wanting skulls at birthday parties i think it went broader than (laughs) it was more than hamlet it was a a wider (laughs) it was wider than just hamlet i'm just saying that it is not completely unknown as a motivation (laughs) okay so not not that it's shakespeare but since we're being (laughs) since i'm exposing other people's secrets yes (laughs) i will expose a little bit of my past um when i was 16 i wanted to be a writer Mm -hmm. And I was also taking European history, AP European history, and I became infatuated with the, the idea of Edward VI <laughs> because it was like inherently tragic to me that he was like the only son and then he died so young and like never got to exercise his power. Right. So I wrote this skit that was um, between a kid who is my age and his therapist and the kid, the therapist was like, asking the kid why he didn't like associating with people his age and like why he didn't like this generation and the kid just kept talking about his obsession with king edward the <laughs> sixth right. and when i applied to nyu as an undergrad i applied to the um screenwriting program and i submitted that skit and i, I actually got in <laughs> so yeah well you know, once obsessions can turn into important things you could end up i don't know teaching yeah. english and shakespeare yeah. for instance yeah. <laughs> and yet i've never taught hamlet so there you go you just you don't want to share it with the world eh? <laughs> i didn't actually end up going to nyu for my undergrad but i did end up going to nyu for grad school in an entirely unrelated <laughs> subject so. Do you occasionally just try to bring up edward the sixth when you're talking about the baths of diocletian just for fun you know <laughs> i might be able to get away with that if i if I tried a little harder, but I don't think it's worth no. it. Anyway, no, I thought that whole stuff. No, of course it was over the top, but everything was over the top and and beautiful. Like that's fine. I didn't mind that. And and people, I told we, I absolutely, genuinely, and not meaning Mark now, but did know people in high school who had you know who were obsessed with this mm. or that, and and who even if they didn't carry it to the point of actually thinking. I mean, she doesn't think. I, I don't know how much to explain the plot to people who haven't seen the movie, but there's this subplot with a friend of Kate's, of Kat's, who's uh, not, who also doesn't want to date boys, but who loves Shakespeare and has like pinups of Shakespeare in her locker. And <laughs> yes. in the end, uh, Cameron's friend, best friend, ends up asking her to the prom in the character of William Shakespeare. And there's like a note and a dress left for her in her locker, like an old fashioned Renaissance dress and a note saying, I'll see you at the ball, my lady from Will. And then he turns up dressed in Elizabethan clothing and they dance and it's all wonderful. It's not like she thinks he's Shakespeare. I mean, it's not like she's presented as actually being insane. She's just swept off her feet by somebody who shows mutual love for the same thing and who wants to, dress up like 
she does and everything. And I think that's completely believable, actually. And really very sweet. I, I will say, <laughs> according to this entirely um, apocryphal note in the IMDb trivia section, <laughs> apparently the original draft of the script had her character wanting to commit suicide so she could join Shakespeare. Ah, that's a whole that other, be, yeah. That would be over the top, I think. Yeah, it would have added a very different note, yeah. to the, <laughs> even if it was played for laughs, but which it probably would have been, yeah. I think they made the right choice on that one. And then I think perhaps the biggest impact of this movie upon people kind of my age is it generated a lot of one-liners. I can I see think that. The, the most famous one is... There's a difference between like and love because I like my sketchers, but I love my Prada back. Oh, yeah, right. And then the other character goes, but, but I love, I my, love sketchers. my sketchers. <laughs> and Bianca replies, that's because you, you don't, don't have, have a Prada, Prada backpack. backpack. Yeah, I mean, I've only watched it once and I can already <laughs> join in with you. It was good. That or was very good. another between the same two characters. So Chastity, the kind of background character says, I know you can be underwhelmed and you can be overwhelmed, but can you ever just be whelmed? And Bianca says, I think you can in Europe. <laughs> yeah, their, their vacuous dialogue was kind of great. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought the character of Bianca was kind of well, was really well done, actually, mm -hmm. because I didn't like her at all at the beginning. And I think that was completely deliberate. You know, I mean, I didn't hate her or anything, but she was presented as vacuous and self-centered and vain. And then you have that one moment in the car when he says to her, are you all when Cameron after she's used him to get to the boy that she really wants, Cameron says, uh, what is it? Are you always this selfish? Or are you always this self-centered? I don't remember exactly what it is. I think it's selfish. Are you always this selfish? And she stops and looks at him and says, yes. And then from then on, she kind of starts to change a bit. And I thought that was also really, I mean, she's what, 16 in the, in the movie? Of course you're airheads, vacuous, self-centered person at 16. And that shouldn't be some sort of, lifelong mark against you you should be able to change and become more reasonable and he was being kind of self-centered too of course mm -hmm. in his own way uh he wanted her and was willing to manipulate other people around him to get her and they both kind of step back from that a bit and become a little more reasonable and i like that i like the way the, the character arc developed for both of them so on the subject of Bianca's vacuousness, I was watching this movie with a friend, uh, actually from high school, a longtime friend, and I don't remember if we ever watched this movie together, but we had both obviously seen it many times, and she has since high school, and this is something I'm very proud of her for, become, become very outspoken against the way that women are routinely mistreated and objectified. So it was really interesting to see her take on this film that we both really love um mm -hmm. you know from our childhood is um, maybe not childhood mm -hmm. from our adolescence because at the, especially at the very beginning it's really really problematic the way that cameron oh, used Bianca yeah. because he he orchestrates this entire scheme he gets patrick to date he gets somebody else to pay patrick to date cat just so he can yep. have bianca yep Oh, and, and there's, I mean, it, and it plays know, very much with the, like, he looks at her and he watches her and she's the object of his gaze and she doesn't even know who he is and he's planning and scheming for her and the, then he deceives her about the French and he absolutely, you know, entraps her into this sort of relationship with him of tutoring on false pretenses. Absolutely. Yes. And there are a couple of moments where I think it does kind of take ownership of this problem and it does not fall prey to some of these traps or cliches yeah 
Exactly. One, when Kat does fall for Patrick, it's when mm-hmm. she's drunk. And he, she tries to kiss him in the car, and he refuses mm-hmm. to let it happen. And, of course, this is a big debate that's happening right mm-hmm. now is kind of what is the fuzzy line of consent when somebody mm-hmm. is drunk. And here we have this movie in 1999, which is, you know, well before we're having this debate as a society, this, you know, the character in this movie is refusing to take advantage of her drunken state, even though it's something yeah. he wants so to that, that, do. That particular tro- is actually a trope, I would say, from movies. And I'm going to not be able to think of the various examples of movies. But that idea of the girl who gets sloppy drunk and suddenly wants to, you know, is, wants to do what she has refused to do up to that point. There are movies, there are er, quite a few earlier movies and the gentlemanly, you know, the gentlemanly figure, however rakish he was before. And I am having a total blank. I can see the movie I am thinking of where this happens, but cannot put my finger on it. You know, someone who is otherwise the the rake in the movie, but mm-hmm. once put to that test, once she's is then like, no, no, I know you will regret this in the morning. I don't want to do it now. Um, so I, I, I do think I'm not saying that that means that the movie doesn't get credit for using it because they do, they, they make the right choice with that whole storyline. And I think it was well done, but I do think it, it existed as a sort of way of showing the heart of gold beneath the otherwise bad boy. Because this, this guy is literally being paid to take her out on mm-hmm. behalf of somebody else, but he's actually a good guy in his feelings yeah. for her. Yeah, he's, and he's presented as a sort of I don't care kind of, not villain exactly, but just a... Well, and I kind of got the sense at that point that his motivation up till then was he was just going along with the plan because it was, you know, the plan that he was hired to do. But when he realizes that he might actually like her. He doesn't want to do it anymore. And he's sort of, he doesn't want to do the plan. He doesn't want to do the plan and he just wants out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that happened before she got drunk. He'd already, he was already like, he was happy to take her out yeah. before she, to take her to that party because he decided that she was actually worth taking to the party. He'd already started to come detached from the plan. Mm-hmm. And then, then he certainly, but also I, I get the feeling that he had, you know, nowhere in the deal was, and you're paid to sleep with her when she's drunk. Mm-hmm. You know, if you see what I mean, like that payment or no payment, whether or yeah. not he liked her, mm-hmm. that was not a thing the character that we had presented to us would have done, I think was, was sort of how the movie was presenting it anyway, that he was not a guy, even if he hadn't liked her, he was not going to take advantage mm-hmm. of her in that position. Um, so yeah, no, I thought that was, uh, that was certainly a, a, a good Let's put it this way. Had they done it the other way, he would have been a villain through and through. So they had to do it that way. One moment that they do give to Bianca's character, which does kind of redeem their treatment of her, is at the end of the film, which takes place at prom because it's a high school film. Oh, yes. This is when, of of course, the scheme is unveiled. And she finds Uh, out and Kat finds out. Joey, Joey is the guy who also wanted Bianca, who they were duping to pay Patrick Mm -hmm. to take Kat out because this isn't confusing (laughs) enough yet. The, sl- the the model, it, the guy who's full of himself, the the yes. the guy that all the women want to be with, but who turns out to be a shallow prick. Yeah. Yes. So Joey gets mad that he didn't w- effectively win Bianca and punches Cameron, and then Bianca comes and she basically mm-hmm. she says, "You punched up. my date, don't you dare!" Yeah. And yeah. Well, she's like, "That's for my date." She punches him in the face. That's for my sister. She punches him in the face again, and he's a model, so he can't have a shiner. 
and this is for me and she knees him mm-hmm. and the groin and that's really the only effective way to do that because you couldn't really have Cameron attacking no well him. and, and it, she's it just, the aggrieved well party character. Mm. really I mean like Cameron yes. Cameron gets a punch from Joy well Cameron kind of deserved, deserved it, it he sense, deserved yeah. not like ultimate disaster but he deserved a bit of a taking down because as you said at the beginning you know he he's hatched this whole scheme now to be fair the the worst thing he did was deceive her about the the being a french tutor and frankly that wasn't that much Mm -hmm. of a deception she's clearly figuring that out pretty early on and it was not that big of a trick it was just allowing him to be close to her the duping that he really did was was cat cat should have punched him in the face at some point because she's the one who got whose emotions got really messed around with yes because bianca was part of this yeah well and also bianca i mean bianca didn't um patrick was sorry cameron wasn't tricking bianca into liking one person or another or whatever like it was that that the Mm -hmm. the false emotion he wasn't tricking Bianca about what he felt or about what anybody else felt. The only person who was being lied to about what someone felt was Cat. Was yeah. Well, and and you know, as as much of a jerk as as Joey was, he was also you know being lied to. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, he was. No, he was. So he, you know, the fact that he got to punch Cameron, you're like, yeah, you. Cameron was using you. You're allowed to feel aggrieved about that. I think so. I thought that that was really nicely mm-hmm. balanced. He gets to say, you know what, Cameron, that was a jerky thing to do. Cameron gets to get a bit of a correction. But then Bianca gets to say, hell, I get to decide who gets hit around mm-hmm. here and do it. <laughs> and and then that sort of evens things out. Um, the actor who plays Joey, Andrew Keegan, was in another Shakespeare adaptation with Julia Stiles, which is O from oh, 2001. I've heard about that too, but I haven't seen it. We can put that on our list. So I don't know if we're ever going to watch that, mm-hmm. but just putting that out there. Yeah, I thought he was, I, he did very well. I mean, it was over the top too, the whole, especially once we get to the party and he's doing the, this is my underwear pose. This is my swimsuit pose. Do you see the difference? <laughs> this is the underwear. This is the swimsuit. Do you see the difference? I mean, that was, it got to the point of, of caricature, hmm. but that was okay because everybody was getting caricatured at that point in the sense that they were all drunk and everybody was being silly. So that was okay. Yes. So before we move on to it mm-hmm. as Shakespeare, do you have any closing thoughts? I have thoughts? to mention the guidance counselor and the teacher <laughs> and the yes. English teacher because they were amazing. Mm. They were amazing. <laughs> the guidance counselor and her erotic novel that she was writing was just, I mean, it was just, it was beautiful. And my favorite part of that is that's her first mm-hmm. scene with Kat and she's asking her secretary. Other words for throbbing. Or synonyms for engorged. Yeah. So she asks. She's asking for sin- and synonyms for. Doesn't she give her engorged? But anyway, sorry. Yeah, you're right. And then Cat walks in, and she's <laughs> yes. like, "Tumescent." And what kind of seventeen or eighteen year old knows? Well, the what Cat is, which is obviously very brilliant. I mean, she's going to the whole um, one of the subplots about where she's going to go to college and about her father learning to let go is about her going to um what is it? sarah lawrence it's the kind of college that you have to know what you're doing to get in i think that There's was one high, of the reasons um yes. academic standard anyways yeah yeah and that's Very so that's that's efforts. the sort of point that is being made i think by that that being the specific college it's not, they could have had her wanting to go to nyu for art for instance or you know they could have had her wanting to move away to a university but it could have been a different one they could have made it be about her being artsy or they could have made it be about her 
being, um, you know, progressive. In, in the German dub of the film, it's Harvard. It's just because they figure that in Germany they only know of about like three schools, so they might as well, yeah, go with that. Probably. Anyway, so no, she's clearly intent. We're we're given to understand that she's intelligent, I think, and and clever as well as intelligent. Uh, but yeah, and the and Mark, you particularly loved the English teacher, didn't you? <laughs> you you were guffawing <laughs> with his. his yeah, uh, he, I mean, he he says what what every teacher probably secretly longs to be able to not say very secretly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of his. Okay, I'm done with you, and <laughs> I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Another one of my favorite lines is, "It must be so hard to overcome years of suburban upper middle class oppression." <laughs> oh yeah, that was almost his first line, and it was just beautiful. It was just so yeah yeah. It must be so hard to be a rich white girl. Um, the, uh, the bit too, where when she, when, when Kat has had her sort of revelation and is like, no, I really want to do this uh, assignment. And she's being genuine. And she's yeah. being genuine and he thinks she's being sarcastic and kicks her out because he thinks she's sassing him. Um, makes me laugh <laughs> and it makes me laugh really hard because, and I think you will appreciate this, John, this story. We had some exchange students from South Carolina one year. Um, in our high school in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, uh, who visited and they were part of a space program thing. Anyway, it's complicated and nerdy. doesn't matter. They attended a few <laughs> classes with us. Mostly they for another project, but they attended a few classes. It was probably grade 11 or 12. And they, being proper South Carolina kids, addressed everyone as sir and ma'am in a nice southern accent. Nobody in our schools, you called teachers sir, but you never called teachers ma'am. I don't, you might say miss. I, like, I don't want to get into the gender mm -hmm. politics of this, but, but we just didn't. You'd say like Mrs. So-and-so, but you would never call her ma'am. And you would never call, uh, I never call, I have never in my life called adults ma'am, except maybe in some sort of a transaction in a store. It's just not part of our dialect. So of course... They did, though, and there was one teacher who was a she was an English teacher and she was a bit crazed and she was an old lady and she was not quite right in the head. And uh, he sat in the class, sat in on her class with her and he asked she asked him something or he said something. And he said, yes, ma'am. And, you know, please, ma'am, can I do this? And she genuinely thought he was being sarcastic and kicked him out of the class <laughs> because every time she said, what are you talking about? He would say, sorry, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Sorry, ma'am. And like, of course understandably totally confused got more and more ma'am e because he was more and more concerned that he was doing something wrong and he didn't understand what he was doing he was the most mild-mannered of men of boys you could possibly know and she genuinely kicked him out of the class and said you go and sit outside if you're going to be like that i don't want you in my classroom and the poor boy was traumatized beyond belief because as far as he knew he had just been as amazingly super polite as he possibly could <laughs> and this woman thought he had been horrible to her and he had no idea what he was done and it was genuinely because he had said ma'am and that just blew us like he couldn't we explained it to him he didn't believe us he was like i must have done something wrong that's no way that someone would kick me out of a class for saying ma'am and when i saw that scene in the movie i was like yep yeah, yep yeah, exactly <laughs> that's exactly what happened so yeah yeah culture clashes they come at strange places <laughs> but no he was just it was the all the stuff in the school was beautifully done as far as i was concerned it was just it was really funny and of course having her do a shakespeare poem uh or do a you know a, re a recasting of a sonnet as her moment 
to recast Kate's speech, the most problematic speech right. in the whole play, yeah. was brilliant. It was great. And I mean, it's really well written and incredibly mm-hmm. effectively performed. Yeah, they're all very good. That that moment legitimately mm-hmm. does make me mm-hmm. tear up a little bit. One thing I find interesting is the name of the movie, 10 Things I Hate About You. She gives more than 10 things, but, but clearly yeah. the name is mostly just to sound the taming of the shrew, the 10 things I hate about you. It has the same And anyway, themes. you can't say like 13 or nine or, you know, like you have to say 10 or 15. Right? There are numbers that matter. You can't <laughs> have titles with I hate about 14 you. in them. Like it doesn't happen. Though 14 would have been nice for a sonnet. sonnet but No, but I mean, you know, you think of lists of 10. Yeah, it, no, it does it's, make sense. of course it yeah. had to be 10. Yeah, that's, yeah. A couple of other comments. One of the taglines for the movie was, how do I loathe thee? Let me count the ways. <laughs> Which, of course, is not Shakespeare, but uh, is rather... Elizabeth Barrett Elizabeth Browning. Barrett Browning. Yeah. 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 But, of course, who knows that? No, it sounds Shakespearean. That's all that matters. <laughs> um, so let's segue into it as Shakespeare. So, I mean, the first... I mean, I guess the obvious first thing, kind of chronologically, that, that um, you know, one has to wonder about is that the, the place has a frame, mm-hmm. a narrative frame, so that it, it's all a play within a play, with this, you know, it's called the induction. There's this scene where a uh, kind of lower class character is out of his mind drunk, and uh, they decide to play a trick on him by convincing him he's the lord of the manor. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then they do a play for and him. And they do a play to entertain him, and that's the main part of the play. Uh, and I think this is one of the uh, points of, of great debate about this play, mm-hmm. and does it rescue the the obvious misogyny of the play um that it's a framed narrative that it's a framed narrative mm-hmm. so it somehow is not therefore really spoken with the real voice of the author and the real yeah that yeah. it's all a, a satire or a joke or something and i mean when you know when uh the play is performed either on stage or adapted to film um in in any kind of contemporary um you know uh, version of it um it's they always have to find a way of uh suggesting that uh you know you do the line ironically or you undercut you know you, you undercut the ending somehow um to rescue that ending the ending being specifically the way kate capitulates capitulates at the end not just that she capitulates but the things she says when she capitulates yeah. and the way she she says i'll put my hand under your foot and mm-hmm. you can step on me and show me that you are my master yeah well, and they don't do the framing device at all in the movie. No. Though I will say that having that seemingly fairy tale high school, though it's funny that it is actually a high school, um, kind of does set it. And and I wonder if I was thinking when I was looking at the frame, I, I think maybe um, the guidance counselor's novel is a nod to the framing device. Yeah. Because she's writing a narrative the whole time. Mm-hmm. She's taking what she sees at the at the sh- at the around her at the school mm-hmm. and turning it into uh, a, a story also one that flips the gender perspective because she's writing it for the titillation of women right presumably and in a sense the fact that they're just making it as a teen comedy is a oh yeah device. yeah because obviously i don't think the teen watching it is really going to care but in that sense, you could say that the teen is kind of the drunken fool. But us watching it, clearly we're in on mm-hmm. the conceit. Well, and, and it, it gets then framed into its own set of conventions that that 
tug against the conventions of the Shakespearean play. So, you, or, you know, or, or the story of the Shakespearean play, a teen comedy has mm-hmm. conventions. Mm-hmm. It has a narrative frame, a structure that it has to follow. Mm-hmm. And you have that tugging against the, the mm-hmm. Shakespearean plot. Yeah, no, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, it's not that I expected it to have the framing device. The framing mm-hmm. device is very uh, alien to the way that we tend to do narrative right. on movies. So it would, you know, it would be very artsy to have that kind of a even anything like that kind of a. Frame well, device. I mean, you can, I mean, you can think something like Princess Bride, which has yeah. a kind of. Well, and that's, but it does device. stand out that yeah. way. Yeah. But it, that is a sort of ploy that Shakespeare uses certainly more than once to mm-hmm. to specifically remind the audience that this is a play these are actors mm-hmm. right yeah I mean, it's for a purpose. dream and well in the tempest and, does this yeah and and then but in terms of the framing device midsummer's night's dream has a inset play an inset play mm-hmm. uh, hamlet has an inset play mm-hmm. i mean inset plays which do something within the plot but also remind you that you're an audience watching the whole thing mm-hmm. they are meta they are meta narratives that or meta dramas that, that comment on the the structure mm-hmm. and the, the system. Yeah. A brief aside to the Tempest before I forget about it. At one point, Cat is tempestuous as being. She describes herself yeah. as tempestuous, and That's I noticed right. that, and I wrote it down because I wondered if it was a description of 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 Catherine, Katerina, in like whether it was actually a line describing her in the Taming of the Shrew. I didn't see it on scanning through. I didn't do a really close reading though to check if it was in there. But I wondered because it was it was delivered with quite a lot of sort of hmm. um, weight. And there was, of course, that one line when uh, Cameron first sees Bianca. He quotes the play, "I burn, I, burn, I pine, I, I perish," pine, and I that perish. is that's direct from the play from the first sight of that that same figure in the Taming the Shrew. I can't remember his name. And they do kind of not an inversion, but a mockery of that later on where I think it's Kat says, I want you. I need you. Oh, yeah. Your baby. Yeah. Yeah. And she says that sarcastically. And I always kind of thought that just kind of the way it uh, like I burn up in a Paris, like I want you. I need you a baby. It's kind of like an mm-hmm. update of that line. But she delivers it in a very sarcastic way. And that's actually one of my favorite quips from this movie that I use all the time. <laughs> and people don't realize that I'm using a line from a movie. And then it gets awkward. I mean, yeah, it balances it nicely because I burn, I pine, I perish. Um, it's a line from Shakespeare. It's a quote. And it is one that whether it was a cliche or not in the original Shakespeare, not that that line is a cliche now, but the idea of burning with desire, of pining, of dying of love is such a cliche. Yeah. Oh, it's cheesy that as hell. her baby, baby, you know, is exactly the same kind of, this is what everybody says. It doesn't mean anything. So yeah, I think it, I think it's, yeah. Uh, I thought, I, I thought it did a good job of taking, so you know, the elephant in the room or the central question with Taming of the Shrew and the reason why it's adapted so much and so rarely performed, not not rarely, but why it's, you know, it's a, it's a fun play and it's an interesting play, but it has this central problem of the basic misogyny of the plot, which is that you have to tame this horrible woman that nobody wants to marry in order to be able to marry the nice woman that everybody wants to marry. Uh, and she so the man who does it basically tortures her into submission and when she finally submits she does so unreservedly 
and with a declaration that she's much happier now that she's realized that she has to be dominated by a man and that anything else is ridiculous, that women's natural state is to be dominated by a man. And that's a problem for us. And if it's not for you listening, you can go listen to something else because I'm done. <laughs> and the way that they address that in the movie is instead he uses the money he got or the, he used the money he was paid to seduce her to give her a present, which in this case is a Fender Strat and is kind of emblematic of her rebelliousness because her introduction at the very beginning of the movie is listening to Joan Jett's reputation. You know, I don't give a damn about my bad reputation. And so in a way, he's actually just contributing to that kind of artistic process for her. So it's rather than her submitting to him, it's him I will support saying, the things you want to do. No, I messed yeah. up. Well, and, 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 and yeah, also so. it's specifically a gift uh, designed to support her independence, right? I mean, he's saying through that that specific choice, I mean, he could have given her any gift and it wouldn't have had the same impact, but it's, it's specifically you go and do something that you want to do. Mm -hmm. And that you can do without me that I'm not, I'm not actually necessary to like, mm -hmm. he didn't give her something that they could enjoy together or anything else mm -hmm. like that. It's something Follow that your he's, dream. he's not a musician. It's not like he's yeah. saying now come and be in my band or something. Yeah. You know, it, it it's a thing she She's wants saying, to I do. I think you should follow your yeah. dream. It's something you said you wanted to do that you thought you couldn't do. And I think you can. So here's my contribution. Yeah. I mean, I, no, I thought, I thought it did a nice job. What it did, and this is where the freedom of it being inspired by rather than an actual performance of, mm -hmm. is it just simply didn't have her say those things. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, it changed the story and that's fine. It, it kept the um it kept the conceit of the story mm -hmm. all the plot machinations but it changed the story it changed a her and what what her motivations were mm -hmm. now they are similar to the original kate but because they're not in the world that kate is the original catherine katarina is in um in the original world her decision not to marry is a fundamentally antisocial um problematic like what is she going to do with her life? And she doesn't, isn't, in fact, in the original play, she's not really deciding not to marry. She is put, she is in such a way that nobody wants to marry her. And she's going to be, like, her life is going to be fundamentally destroyed by that, frankly. In a sense, you think about Shakespearean England, a woman who no one wants to marry, who's going to be left without a husband. Like, that's, it's a serious social detriment and financial and economic. And, like, that's not a life you want to live so she's trapped and when she finally submits part of what's going on is she's you know found someone that she can match and love and be happy and that has rescued her from a trap of her own making that's not what cat is in the situation of if she doesn't go out with anyone in high school her life isn't over nothing horrible socially or financially would go on. She could go on to never marry and she'd be a perfectly happy, fulfilled. You know, it's just a completely socially different world. So she doesn't need, she doesn't need, yes, she falls in love and yes, she has a boyfriend at the end, but that's a choice she gets to make much more freely than in The Taming of the Shrew. In The Taming of the Shrew, she's, there's real problematic pressure on her. Cat can just be like, you know what? I... I kind of like being with this guy and I can decide to do that. And I don't 
she's actually walking out of the trap. The trap she's made for herself is of, I don't, I want to do what nobody expects of me. That's what she says. And I don't want to do what everyone expects. And I don't want to do what other people want me to do. I only want to do what myself. The trap she's built for herself is that she doesn't realize that she's still, that now she's built a new set of expectations and she's matching them. Now everybody thinks she's the scary girl. And so she has to fit those expectations. And that the trap is, no, now I'm still just conforming to what everyone else thinks I am. I have to take control and say, no, I can be whatever I want. And if that means doing something different than what you thought I was going to do, so be it. Mm -hmm. That's a very different problem that she was facing than what that was facing in, in Taming the Shrew. So she doesn't have to do that whole capitulation. Her capitulation is just to say, you know what? I have an emotion and I wish to express it. It's totally different than the structure of marrying and, you know, all of what. So they just take that speech away. Her, she doesn't say those things. Though I suppose the one way that uh, it does sort of reflect the, the sort of taming of the original play is that in that uh, in that poem, mm -hmm. um, you know, she says, you've done all these terrible things and hurt me. And yet I still love you. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's if she's given the capacity, therefore, to. Uh, to love him anyways, mm -hmm. right? And the capacity, therefore, to forgive him. Yeah, and and I mean that uh, if you wanted to to find fault uh, with it from a feminist perspective or from a, a progressive perspective, I suppose you could find fault with saying that she still, in the end, says, you know, love will overcome the na the nasty power play you've done, and that as a narrative is can be twisted and is twisted in many relationships in the world into I know he's hurt me but he loves me and I know he's hurt me but I love him so I can put up with him hurting me which can be a very damaging and problematic thing on the other hand it is also a real reflection of real relationships people do do that that poem to me of course all I heard was Catullus Odietamo. I hate <laughs> and I love I do not know why it happens but I feel it happening and I burn I am tortured that's he only did in two lines you know he's a little better than Shakespeare but only a little um, but you know that's the sentiment and that's her sentiment it's been around for a long time and uh it is not uh you know it is not always a sign of a dysfunctional relationship it can be a real thing you can be very angry at somebody and love them very much that is a real thing so I'm not crit I'm not saying that I'm criticizing it on those grounds but I'm saying that you know that is a thing you can see in it. But as, um, as a position, it is a much more acceptable and whole and human perspective than what we see in Taming of the Shrew. But it's not even that she uh, necessarily at that point has to take him back, right? No, she's it's just a recognition of her herself. emotion. Yeah. yeah, and she's she's taking that step outside the trap, which is to say, I'm going to do something that nobody in this room expects me to do, mm -hmm. and I'm going to say what I want to do because I want to say it, and that's all I'm going to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she doesn't necessarily at that moment want to want him, want a relationship with him. No. She just wants to say what she feels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I I thought it was beautifully done. I, I mean, I think that's the thing about a a modern version of it is you are not you are not trapped by the lines in the actual original Shakespeare that mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. no matter how you play them a problem and they just took them out and they didn't have to put them in and they didn't and thank God because if they had tried to do that 
you know, have her say essentially the same thing about an updated English. It would have it would been horrible. Mm-hmm. It would have been really upsetting to see that cat broken. Yeah. And they and that's the other thing they don't do. He doesn't torture her. No. I mean, even metaphorically, he doesn't break her spirit. Mm-hmm. He's like, there's nothing of that. There's none of him like showing her the error of her ways or. Um, or acting kind of crazy or unhinged or something. Yeah. And, and there's a whole, I mean, there's a whole background narrative to that. Like there's other movies where that you do that, where you, you, you overdo, you top the other person's bitchiness so you Mm -hmm. top the other person's um aggressiveness or whatever until they realize that they can't compete like the beatrice and benedict of much ado about nothing which is of course much more acceptable Mm. but you know there they just top each other's yeah witticisms until they kind of realize they're well matched well and if anything he changes for the better and trying to appeal to her. Yeah, he changes yeah. more than her in many yeah. ways yeah. in that whole uh, relationship, in fact. He gives up mm-hmm. smoking, which... Also, there's a scene where he's at a bar, like he's 18. Yeah, no, he shouldn't really have been there, yeah. yeah. Smoking at a bar. And, uh, no, he, and he, he, has, he has this terrifying reputation at the school of being this, you know, person. Yeah. I love the things they invent to make him seem like... I heard he lit a state trooper on fire. I heard he ate a live duck once. Everything yeah, with the yeah. beak in. And I did. And I, I love the scene where they were trading rumors. Like, oh, they say this about okay. you. Is that true? No, no, that's. Well, they say this about you. Well, that's true. You know, Cat also has this series of rumors, rumors about her yeah. because she's so scary. Um, and they're trading and 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 realizing that neither of them have done either of these things. And and that she, by sharing that, they're yeah. No, I I think. I mean, I think that is the real inversion and the real the thing that rescues the whole plot mm-hmm. from from Shakespeare to make it uh, acceptable is that he transforms more than she does. And all she does is let down a few walls that she's built up because Joey hurt her, really, is all. And she decides to take more risks. And that's really the entire that's the entirety of her transformation, which is just becoming more independent, opening up more. And getting a little closer to her sister, all of which are not, and they're not inspired by pain, really. I mean, there is some pain along the way of having been tricked. That's where the torture part comes in, I suppose, is that she's been lied to and tricked. But he changes, he gives up smoking, he gives up sort of his wild ways, he gives up, and he also, that whole scene where he dances in the stadium, right. which was hilarious, um, he gives up his cool. That's what he gives up there. Because he's this, he's, you know, the cool loner in the sense that he's, everybody's terrified of him, but he's got this big rep. And then he dances like a big goof and makes a complete <laughs> ass of himself. So he gives up more of his rep hmm. than she has to hmm. even. The funny thing is, if a guy did that to me, I would be so embarrassed. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I really did expect, I actually expected it to be her being like, what the hell, what dude? <laughs> Why would you put me through that? But anyway but they played it nicely i mean it was fine and it was very funny um as a as a former marching <laughs> band geek the marching band portrayed in that scene does not know what they are doing <laughs> <laughs> well that's i'm glad to know that's an important piece of uh, <laughs> of realism or not up yeah. next my hot take on the movie drumline <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i think i mean in terms of like one of the questions to ask, I think, about this kind of an adaptation is why bother being inspired by Shakespeare? 
a teen comedy can be a teen comedy? Why does it need to be Shakespeare inspired? What does it gain by doing that? Why not Moby Dick? And so, I, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think it gets from it? What does it, other than just the sort of, you know, marketing device? They kind of reference it within the scope hmm. of the movie because the English teacher talks about Shakespeare mm-hmm. regularly. I mean, other characters do, but it's it's addressing the fact that, you know, as high schoolers, you have yeah. to read some Shakespeare. And I think subtly the movie is saying you might not understand the value of what you're reading, but the fact is that it can still, you know, mm-hmm. it can still speak to you. Parts of it can still pertain to your life. There's a reason why these stories have become so fundamental in our consciousness as you know the anglophony is that a word anglophony should be let's make it <laughs> i know i know francophony is a word anglosphere <laughs> anglo the anglosphere anglo- just sounds like something you'd read about in an opinion article in the economist <laughs> that's true the anglotosphere <laughs> i like that it doesn't make any sense but i like it anglotosphere yeah <laughs> sorry that's my halloween costume next year <laughs> but you're right i agree i think the it, the fact that it is set in high school makes the the Shakespeare connection particularly relevant in a way that, you know, if you were adapting a Shakespeare uh, play to, you know, adults in a in an office environment or something, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have that resonance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it becomes a meta narrative about people reading Shakespeare and Kate's trend, uh, not transformation exactly, because one gets the sense that she's always reading texts fairly intelligently. But her ability to find an emotional connection to Shakespeare, which is what that epiphany scene, the, 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 the yeah. speech scene. So she's set the task of rewriting a Shakespeare sonnet in her own poetic voice. And she does so and then reads the poem. And it's the 10 things I hate about you uh, of the title. And just this is just for if you haven't seen the movie. And uh, that is how she reveals that she does indeed love Patrick in spite of. Uh, all he's done to her what's happening there is she's finding an emotional connection to Shakespeare she's realizing that there is this great world of people who've had the same experiences she has that she's not alone that she's not unique that but that that's not a bad thing it's okay to be not unique because you can in fact connect with other people um and I think in and and that's a meta narrative for how as you say as how high schoolers can be shown that you know you can do this too you can go through Shakespeare you've watched this movie you've enjoyed this movie doesn't that show you that you can connect to Shakespeare on the same way that the cat has found that she can connect to Shakespeare and in a way that makes the point of the jokey side story about her friend Mm -hmm. who's in love with Shakespeare she too feels that Shakespeare understands her in a way that nobody else does. And then she finds she's not alone. She finds somebody else who cares about Shakespeare and who uses it as a lens through which to see the world and who finds her and that they find each other and that that makes something important. A brief note about Michael, who is Cameron's friend, who then falls in love with Mandela, Mm -hmm. the Shakespeare obsessive. At one point when Cameron is sad that the scheme isn't working, Michael says, sweet love, renew thy force to yes. him <laughs> which is from i think it's sonnet 56 i don't know the numbers but yes <laughs> yeah but even like within the you know maybe this is not something that the average reader of the text would understand right. mm-hmm. but even within the point of the movie like a high schooler is using 
directly yeah. Shakespearean text. Well, and indeed, when Cameron does use that, I burn, I pine, I perish, the point there is Shakespeare used the words, Cameron used the words, they fit Cameron's position just as well as they fit the original play's position. These are things that people have said and thought and felt before. This is all part of a larger pattern. And I think the generous reading of that is not to say that just shows we're all cliches, but to say we're all human and we experience many things and we can learn and understand our own selves by looking at how other people have gone through the same things, which is, of course, the great humanist project, at least theoretically, that that's what the humanities can help us do is to make those connections through other people's experiences of similar problems. And yeah, I mean, maybe that's too deep to say that the movie is, or too putting too much weight on the movie to say that it's really all a, an, uh, a parable for how you should all read your Shakespeare and understand the humanities. <laughs> but I don't know that it's too far off. But I mean, like, when you're a young person, it can either be really comforting to know that other people have felt the mm -hmm. way that you are, or it can be incredibly alienating for somebody to mm -hmm. tell you your feelings are not unique. Yeah, mm. it can be frustrating and, and upsetting. Belittling. Yeah, and I think that's what Kat is going through. She does think maybe she's unique. She's this, you know, and she clings to that, that I'm the only one who, uh, who sees through everything. And that's a thing that happens to us, to many people in high school. Oh, you know, you sheep, you all do the same thing, but I'm the one who can stand aside and see the difference and be aware in a way that you aren't. And she almost literally says that several times. But then she is able to, through the Shakespeare, see that, no, she's not unique, but that's okay. It's okay to not be unique. It doesn't make you not important. It just makes you human. That that's all right. And that's a, a nice thing. Yep. It was a really good movie, and I could talk about it for longer because it was really funny. But basically, if you haven't seen it, go see it. Find it. Watch it. I am now a big advocate of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that because, I mean, it really is one of my favorite movies. I can you see know, why. <laughs> you have your list of movies that you think are the most meritorious mm -hmm. and your list of movies that are your favorites. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't put this yeah. in the first column, but I would definitely put this in the second column. And I know a lot of people are big fans of the movie Legally Blonde. Um, it was mm -hmm. written by mm -hmm. the same people who wrote this movie. So, no, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Bond not being a Shakespeare adaptation, but still being kind of uh, a feminist empowerment story and a take on a traditional narrative. Disguised as not. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, the one that to me feels similar because it's also one of my, it's not going to feature in this podcast because it's not Shakespeare is, is Clueless, mm -hmm. um, which is an Austin adaptation and is, I think, really well done too in a similar vein like it does a really smart things yeah. with the story yes. yeah and it's also very funny so yeah here's my closing trivia this movie the only other major or culturally important movie that opened the same weekend as this mm -hmm. was the matrix <laughs> <laughs> wow all right a very very different film but at the same time if you look at the way that the matrix is basically just cartesian philosophy for the everyman yeah same kind, kind of, of idea operating in the same yeah. yeah john you every movie every moment of the movie is your favorite mo moment right yeah it's kind of hard to pick <laughs> a favorite moment <laughs> with so many to uh yeah I, I, yeah i don't know that i have a specific favorite moment i just have i, I love the the number of one-liners that i that are just part of my vocabulary yeah. consciousness from this movie, you know, 
I could go on and on. There's the Prada backpack. There's the Underwhelmed. There's which planet are you from? Planet Loser. As compared to Planet, look at me. Look at me. Like I just <laughs> use these. Like these are part of my socioelect. I don't think I could actually quote any of them, but I think you could take any of the any of the lines that the English te- teacher says, and they would be my favorite line. Just, I mean, not because they're the most meaningful in the whole pull- in the whole movie. The next time you're crusading the school board for better lunch meat or whatever it is you white yeah. girls get up about, ask him why we can't buy a book written by a black man. Uh, Shakespeare's a, what is it? A, he's a dead white dude, but uh, he knows he his shit, so we shit. can forgive him that or whatever it is. Yeah, that's that's just it's just good stuff. So I, I, he was my favorite. <laughs> i'd probably pick something in a sense kind of boring like the um 10 things i hate about you poem mm-hmm. at the end but that's you're allowed to have obvious favorites it's okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah because that poem like maybe it's a little bit of an obvious moment but it's such mm-hmm. a powerful yeah, moment in it is a film. you know it, it yeah it made me tear up but i'm i will cry at everything that directors think you should cry at so it doesn't <laughs> that doesn't prove much of anything you know i cry mm-hmm. a lot and I used to make myself, I used to belittle myself for that. But you know what? I like it. If something is affecting me, I'm going to let it affect me. I'm going to get yeah. swept up in the moment. Because I, I especially noticed there are moments where I find myself observing myself responding, responding to what I'm observing to. And then modulating my response based on what I think my response should be. Which is way That's too... That's just a, a bad place for your head yeah. to be, really. Yeah. No, I cried when she did read the poem, and I am not, I, you know, it's it's easier for me maybe to be not ashamed of it, but I'm not ashamed of it. I've never been ashamed of the fact that I will cry at ads on TV. I mean, I will cry very easily, and that's okay. I will also weep my eyes out about stuff, which can get a little bit uh, tiring when you're watching a movie with me, and I'm <laughs> weeping in a corner, but <laughs> it can be a little extreme, but, <laughs> but no, I, I thought it was a very sweet, uh, and, and beautifully played moments so mm-hmm. yeah all right so next time we're gonna make you watch one of our favorites john and it's gonna be much ado about nothing the kenneth Branagh version so join us next time for a more straightforward adaptation of a shakespeare play the much ado about nothing by kenneth Branagh. all right well thanks everyone for listening bye thanks for listening to as we like it you can find more episodes and more information about the show at theextracurricular.com and find more about Avon and Mark's other projects at alliterative.net. If you enjoyed today, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher, as your five stars can really help us reach new listeners. You can reach us all on Twitter. I'm at alliterative. I'm at Avon Sarah, A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H. And I'm at John Vox, J-O-N-V-O-X. <laughs>